I want to say I'm so glad that you did not allow the weather to dictate as to whether or not you were going to come to church tonight. And I think that's a pretty positive thing. How many of you know it's not so great weather tonight? And uh, sort of reward you in return. I'm going to be sure to let you out, wrap up the message before the snow starts falling tonight. And uh, so we'll be done. I want to be sure you get home comfortably and safely. And to give you some perspective so that you know it's really not that bad, how many of you would admit here in Florida we are quite spoiled, to say the least? Everybody was talking about how cold it was going to be this week, and it was a busy, busy day, and I'm in my office, but I've heard it so much, so I took out my phone real quick and just checked the temperatures. And then out of curiosity, because we have a son that lives in Illinois, I just sort of scrolled the screen and looked and see what his weather was going to be like this coming week. And uh, even though it was uh, crazy busy, I picked up the phone real quick, gave him a call and said, hey, Brent, just want to let you know, you guys are going to have some great weather this week. He said, what do you mean? I said, it's going to be really cold. He said, how cold? I said, I'm looking at it right here. Um, You've got a day, I think it's Tuesday or Wednesday, I can't remember which. Uh, It's going to be negative 10 for your low. That's no, no wind chill, just temperature, negative 10. I said, but here's the good news. It's going to warm up to one degree. It's going to warm up to one degree. So how many of you are thankful for Florida? How many of you are thankful that we can be in church even on a cold night? I'm so glad that we are here. You know, over the years, I've just done a lot of wedding ceremonies. It comes with the territory. It's what pastors do, weddings and funerals and such. And I've done a lot. And uh, in fact, uh, I'll do the wedding for our daughter uh, in June of this year. And excited about it, but you know, it's the last one, and uh, you know, it's the baby, it's the girl, and two knucklehead boys, and now the girl, and it was easier for the boys than the girl, and you know, added to sort of the dilemma that uh, our future son-in-law, this, I don't even know how this can be God's will, it doesn't even make sense, but he is a diehard Florida Gator fan, and that doesn't seem right to me. That does not seem that that would be in keeping with God's will. But nevertheless, that's how it is, Tim. He's a gator. Well, this was a wedding that I did many, many years ago, and I've done a lot, but this one I'll always remember. It was very hot. It was in the middle of summer, and uh, it was going to be an outdoor uh, ceremony, which that didn't seem to go together in the south, you know, outdoor, middle of summer. It was like 110 degrees in the shade, but it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad because while we're waiting for the wedding to begin, we're in a nice air conditioning house. I'm looking out of the back, uh, sort of a bay window. The lawn is beautiful. It really is green grass and white chairs lined up in neat little rows. And, you know, it's going to be a great. But I'm thinking, hey, you know what? These people have got to be, because I'm watching them arrive, these people have got to be incredibly hot. And I'm sure that they were, and I'm standing in the air conditioning, and I'm feeling a little bit guilty about it, and I'm saying, wow, you know, it's going to be hot, and, you know, I'm glad this ceremony's not going to be really long. And so I keep looking at my watch and thinking, all right, well, we've got about 15 minutes or so till this ceremony's going to begin. And so the wedding parties gather, families gather, we're all there, and uh, I just keep looking at my watch, and I know what the start time is, I know what the printed start time on the program is, and I'm looking at it, and I just sort of every now and then would glance and knew that we were getting closer and closer. So it came time to start. We're ready to go. We're getting ready to walk out, but there is no bride. How many of you know the ceremony does not go forward without a bride? And there was no bride. And so I'm like, well, it's starting time. I'm saying this, you know, in my mind, in my heart, I'm not saying it out loud. It's time to go. It's time to go. We got it, you know, and I'm thinking these people are going to start dropping like flies. It's hot out here. We should be keeping them waiting. And I looked, and I'm like, oh, man, I don't know what's going on. And I look. Starting time, five minutes after. 10 minutes after. How many of you are feeling the tension already and you weren't even there? 
15 minutes after. I'm not kidding. I'm looking at these people. It's like, man, they're going to have a heat. 20 minutes after the printing start time on the program, here comes the bride, and she's rushing down the stairway, and you can just tell she's frantic. She knows that she's kept everybody waiting, and she's all nervous, and you could just see it. She had underestimated how long it would take her to get ready, and so it had taken her much longer to get ready than she intended, and she knows that she had kept everybody waiting to now. It's 20 minutes late. Everybody's in the heat. Everybody's outside. Did I tell you she was nervous? She is so nervous and she's so frantic. I just sort of see this playing out in slow motion. I see her headed, you know, our way to get with the wedding party so the, you know, the processional can begin. And so we're lining up. And there was a small table, not much bigger than that. And there was a, uh, you're already going to be ahead of me when I tell you this, there was a wedding cake that was several tears. And I saw her, and she's frantic, and she comes, and she's got this big, beautiful dress on. And as she comes by, she bumps the table, and the table does like this. It just starts rocking. And I'm watching in slow motion, and I see that cake. I'm like this. I mean, like slow motion. And then, I kid you not, it splattered all over the ground. Did I say she was nervous? Did I say she was frantic? And I guess because I was standing close by, she looked right at me, and then she took a, you know, uh, a couple of steps forward, and she's like in my personal space here. Like, she's now really, really quick, and I'm like, all right. So she's right up here, and she says, and steer, tears start coming down her cheeks, and she says, I can't do this. I'm like, oh, we got a problem here. <laughs> this is not good. People are falling out. It's 20 minutes late. You know, this is not good. Kate's on the floor. And now she's saying, I can't do this. And so in a couple of minutes, I just said, yes, you can, you know, and it's all right. And, and we need to get going. And one day you're going to look back and laugh. None of us, I'm thinking none of us are laughing right now. But one day we'll look back and laugh. And so we just need, and so she sort of dried her tears. And the uh, ceremony went on. When you read the Bible, the Bible t- typifies that the church, one of the, you know, it's called the body of Christ, it's called the family of God, and there's so many titles that are in the Bible, Bible concerning uh, church, but one of the terms we know in regards to the church is what? It's the bride. It's the bride of Christ, especially Revelation. There's language that says the church is the bride, and that one day, and we all know this, we know it, we've grown up in church long enough to know that one day, Jesus is coming back for his bride. How many of you know that? But will the bride be ready? Will the bride be ready when Jesus comes back for his church? Are we ready? I mean, really, are we ready? Are, are we influencing the people? Are we ready? I mean, personally, I think we've got to take a step back and sort of do some spiritual inward, uh, you know, examination, say, you know, do I, am I confident, you know, not just that I attend church? Am I confident not just that, you know, I've got Christian friends, but am I confident that I have personally received Christ as the Savior, the leader of my life? Do I know for absolute fact that I'm ready for the rapture when it comes? And if we can say absolutely yes, then it begs another question. What about the people that are around us? What about the people that we know and the people that we love? I talked a little bit about that at our South Campus with our South Campus family this morning, that God raises open doors. The reality is, I think for most, most of us, and I just got real transparent, just said, you know what? I'm a little bit disgruntled with where I'm at in this regard. How many of you know that when you first become a follower of Jesus, I mean, you are like fired up about your faith, and you wanted to tell everybody you've got these unsaved family members, and it's like uh, Jesus has done such a transformational work in your own life. You want to do everything you can. You're like red hot in terms of evangelism. 
evangelism, and you want to talk about Jesus, you want to lead people to Jesus, you want to make sure that your family members are ready for heaven, you want to make sure that your friends are ready for heaven. But how many of you know that cools down if we're not careful over time? How many of you know that's a fact? And so it causes us to back off on that one again and say, well, you know, if I'm personally ready, you know, for the rapture, and I hope maybe all of you are, what are we doing to help others to be ready? What about people who are far from God? What about irreligious people? What about skeptics and agnostics and such? And this is critically important for all of us to realize. And it is that this world, as we currently know it, is going, this is an absolute fact, this world as we know it is going to come to an end. And the Bible actually tells us how it's going to happen. Now, I want to just deal with a technicality for just a moment, get it out of the way, because we want to get really practical tonight. But uh, we talk about end-time events, last things. In fact, there's a, you know, like an uh, eight-cylinder theological word for the doctrine of last things. And I ask the guys to just put it up on the screen. Eschatology is actually the doctrine of last things. And it is coming. I know it looks like ready or not now, but it is. And eschatology is like the study of last thing. Eschatos, last, and logos, uh, study. And and when you're talking about end-time events... um, you know, the Bible talks about it, how it's going to happen. Now, I don't recommend that when you're trying to share your faith with somebody far from God that you say, hey, listen, I'm getting ready to lay upon you some eschatological teaching that I think is going to be transformative for your life. And No, no, that's not what we're doing. But, I mean, when you look at the study of last things, there's a lot to be said about it. In fact, there's another word, another Greek word, because rapture, we say, well, where is rapture in the Bible? Look at this next word. It's actually the word harpezo, which means you're not going to see the word rapture, actually, unless it's like a really, really modern translation, but you're going to see the kind of language about there's coming a time when the body of Christ is going to be caught up. It's going to be seized. It's going to be snatched away. Jesus is coming back, and at that last moment, we've got to be ready. Now, Did you know that on more than 300 occasions that the Bible tells us, 300, more than 300, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is coming back again? And before we go too deeply into this, I want to take care of not just a technicality, but maybe a little bit of theological housekeeping, because a lot of scholars, a lot of uh, theologians have written in regards to this, and there are a lot of different perspectives, primarily three, as to just when the rapture of the church is going to take place especially when you look at it in regards to the tribulation. Most of you have studied the Bible, again, eschatologically. It tells us that at the end of time, you know, we know about the millennial reign of Christ. We know about the rapture. We know about the second coming. We know about the time of tribulation. We've studied that. Most of you growing up in church have studied that. Most of you have. Some of you maybe have not. But Jesus, the Bible says, is coming back. And when is the rapture going to take place? And primarily, again, this is sort of some theological housekeeping, there seems to be three prominent ideas in regard to this. There's the pre-tribulational rapture. And this is just uh, some scholars who would just say this is what we embrace, you know, a pre-tribulational rapture that just before, just before the great tribulation begins, that seven-year period, just before then, the rapture of the church is going to take place, that Christ is going to come. Remember that word, harpezo is going to come, going to snatch, going to seize, going to take his bride caught up together to be with him in the air. And so some scholars have this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture just before the tribulation. Another notion of thinking in this regard would be a mid-tribulational rapture, and that's simply, it's self-explanatory at the midway point of the tribulation, that three-and-a-half-year mark, that at that point, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, is going to be taken away out of the world during the tribulation. Then there's actually the post-trib, and that's simply after the tribulation, that Christians, the church, are going to go through the tribulation, and at the end of the tribulation, that 
that, you know, at that time the rapture is going to occur. Now, I want to be careful in what I'm about to say. Do I lend myself, you know, uh, speaking, theologically speaking, in one direction? And I do, and I don't mind telling you. For me personally, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I believe in that. And, you know, I'm glad that I not only believe it, but I'm glad that if it's going to happen that way, and I believe that it will, that we're going to be out of here before the tribulation ever takes place. Now, you may say, well, you know, I don't lean that way. You know, I have your tradition, you grew up, I'm mid-tribulational and post-tribulational. But this is, this is the real issue when you think about it. Here's the reality. You just be ready. Just be ready. The bigger issue is not pre or post or mid-tribulation. The, the reality is, are we ready? Are we doing everything that we can to help other people to get ready? Now, I will toss this in. It's something for you to think about. You can look at it later on your own. I won't even take the time to get into it tonight. In chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation, the church is mentioned. Think about this. How many chapters? You remember how many chapters in Revelation? Very last uh, book of the New Testament. In the first three chapters, chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation, the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, is mentioned 19 different times. But after chapter 4, where the tribulation is beginning to be described, the church is not mentioned again. A little later in this talk, I'm going to take you to a passage in 1 Thessalonians, and the reason I mention that is because some background in regards to that might be helpful. 1 Thessalonians, primarily, Paul's writing to these believers, obviously, in Thessalonica, and uh, chapter 4 is a primary section of teaching regarding the rapture. And Paul is addressing a concern, and here's the concern. Some of those Christ followers living, track with me on this now, some of these Christ followers living in Thessalonica have understood Paul to say that all who believed in Jesus, all who were Christians, all who had received Christ would see the rapture. Now, Paul didn't say that, but there was this notion of thinking going around that that is what, you know, he had said, but he didn't say that, and he'll provide some clarity later. So what would that mean? And Paul's going to address it. We'll come to it a little later. So what does that mean for followers of Jesus that had already died? And we need to talk about it. So what I want to do in the next few moments that we have together, I want to just share with you, won't take us very long, three things that all of us need to know about the rapture. Listen, I've grown up hearing it all my life. You've grown up hearing it your life, your whole life. And if we're not careful... We can be lulled into, even though we know Jesus, love Jesus, love his word, love his church, we can be lulled into believing, well, I've heard it my whole life. Surely it's not going to happen in my life. But the Bible said Jesus is coming back in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. So three things, three things. You may want to jot them down. Number one, concerning the rapture of the church, the rapture will occur suddenly and without warning. We know that, right? The rapture of the church is going to occur suddenly and without warning. Now, our thinking uh, is usually this in this regard in most uh, so many different aspects of our life. If we see something coming, if we see it coming, there's time to anticipate and there's time to react. 
a car in front of us slams on the brakes, and hopefully we've got time to see it in advance and react and stop in time. A jar is about to slide off the counter, and we see it happening, and, you know, hopefully we catch it in time before it hits the ground and, and crashes. A baby is learning to walk, and uh, don't you love to see a new baby beginning to walk when they, and they're just sort of toddling around, and they're trying, and you see them pick up speed, and, and before they lose their balance, we see what's going to happen. We, we react to that. We keep them from falling. And so we just think that it's always going to be that way. We'll have time to anticipate and to react. Now, I, I want to I take you to a, a couple of passages, really three, in Matthew. And I want you to look at these passages with me in Matthew because they provide absolute clarity. And there's some important words uh, here in this first one. Matthew 24, 36. Look at this. Say the first three words with me. Everybody, say them with me. Help me out. No one knows. No one knows about that. Or, now this is, this is unique. This is, and, and uh, you know, you're saying, well, how can this be? Not even the angels in heaven know. They don't know. Jesus said, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, I've got to tell you, for the longest time, I didn't believe that. I did not believe it until I got older. As a kid, I did not believe that. I just didn't. I believed, I believed that God knew when the rapture was going to take place, but I thought that there was uh, one other person who knew, and that was my mamma. I thought for certain my mamma knew when Jesus was coming back. How she knew, I don't know. How she found out, I don't know. Why she's not telling the rest of us, I don't know. But God knew. My pastor didn't even know, but mamma knew. And maybe that was because I was so small, and Mamma was the person that I knew that was closer to God than anybody else in my life. I didn't know anybody closer to God aside from my pastor than my Mamma. And she loved church, and she went to church, and I went with her. And, and uh, she loved church, and she loved music, and she loved going to services. And, and as a kid, I saw a lot of stuff growing up in church. I really did. I, it was too young for me to remember, but apparently we came out of a pretty conservative church tradition initially, and then we came over into what was like a full-blown Pentecostal, charismatic church. And I mean, I saw things as a kid. I was thinking about this recently. You could have just handed me a little bucket of popcorn, and I could have just sat in church and just been enamored by it all. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Just wave at me. And so I was seeing things, and you know, I, you know, Mamma loved church. I love church. I, I played church. I duplicated church, and it was not uncommon. How many of you remember the day? What were our parents thinking when we'd ride around in the cars? And as kids, little kids, we didn't have seatbelts on. You remember those days? We didn't have seatbelts on. What were they thinking? Why were they? I can remember going on trips with my parents. There are three of us kids, my brother, my sister, and I. And there would be like three choices in the back seat on a long trip where you could sleep. You could take the floorboard, and that wasn't really comfortable because it had that hump in the middle. But if you planned strategically, you could sort of incorporate that in to a good nap. The prize place was the back seat. But any of you remember this? Any of you remember there was the window? You remember that little ledge? And so. That was like the second chair spot. If you couldn't be comfortable, at least you could lay up under that window and so you could get a nap and a suntan at the same time. That was a really cool thing. And so we wouldn't, we wouldn't wear seatbelts. And I can remember, I can remember riding around, although I was very small, I vaguely remember standing. Can you believe she had let me do this? 
no seatbelt laws at that time. I don't want to ever go back to that. But we'd be driving in Atlanta. She would be. I was, in, I was three or four. And she'd be driving around Atlanta, and I'd be standing beside her. And, you know, all I knew to do is to what I saw in church. And so she'd be driving along, and she would crank up her gospel music, and I'd be standing right beside her in the front seat, and I would throw my hand straight in the air, get out, let out a little yell, and then I'd be slain in the spirit right in the front seat. She'd be driving around Atlanta. I'm slain in the spirit. Now, she knew that I was, you know, I couldn't say slain in the spirit, didn't know. So I'd just say, Mamma, I was under the power. I was under the power. You turned up. I let out a yelp. I fell. I was under the power. And she'd just be driving around Atlanta. And I was under the power in the front seat, just laying there, three years old. She knew I wasn't under the power. I knew that I wasn't under the power, but she seemed entertained by it, nevertheless, because I could. I could look and just squint, and she just seemed to be having a great time watching me under the power. But Mamaw knew. Nobody else, not my mom, not my dad, not any of the pastors, but Mamaw knew. But she didn't. And nobody knows. Look at this next part in Matthew. Look at it with me here. Two men will be in the field. Two men will be playing golf. Two men will be working in the office. Two men will be hanging out. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. It's descriptive terms. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. Two women will be in the office complex together. Two women will be having lunch. Two women will be walking through the mall. And one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, what are these two words? Say them with me. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. You don't know. Sudden, without warning. Look at this next verse. Matthew 24, 44. So you also must be ready. And we're taking it beyond that. You must be ready, but you've got to help your family members and your friends, your coworkers, and your neighbors to be ready too. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour. Everybody read this. When you do not expect him. At a time when we do not expect him. If you're not ready when the rapture takes place, no one will be able to warn you that Jesus is on the way. One Bible scholar says it like this, and you'll see this up here on the screen. One scholar describes it this way. He says that Jesus explains that he will appear suddenly, unexpectedly, and with devastating impact on those who do not believe. So the first reality concerning the rapture of the church, we don't hear a lot about it, but it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And that is the rapture will occur suddenly and without warning. And even though we've heard it our whole lives, and we may somehow be lulled into thinking, well, it's not going to happen in my life, we don't know. Only God knows. Secondly, when the rapture takes place, deceased Christians, deceased believers will rise ahead of those who are alive at that moment. Let me say that again. When the rapture takes place, we know this. Deceased believers will rise ahead of those who are alive at that moment. Now, here's the passage. I mentioned to you, I gave you a little bit of background that they were thinking, some believers in Thessalonica, that Paul was saying that believers are going to see the rapture. He didn't say they're going to see the rapture. And so, uh, just look at this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 16. According to the Lord's own word. This is Paul. Again, it's this uh, great teaching that he's given. These are not the words of Jesus. Paul's words. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are what? We who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. I love this. I love it. I love it. I love it. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven 
with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. And everybody, let's say this together. And the dead in Christ will rise first. That's plain enough, isn't it? Now, when I read this, the first question that jumped into my mind when I first began to read the Bible is, well, where's the dead in Christ right now? Where's the dead, the dead in Christ right now? Are they floating in space? Are they in some form of soul sleep? Are they just going to lie dead in their coffins until then? A lot of you know, because I talked about it quite a lot, that my mom, man, I just had like a fabulous mom. Mom passed away. She she, in my estimation, was pretty young a couple of years ago. She was 70 years of age, and, and I miss her like crazy to this day. And I can remember we're getting ready to leave the cemetery. It's January. It's cold. Everybody's bundled up. We're getting ready to leave. You've been there. Most all of you have been there with, with a family member, if not a family member, a friend. And they're not lowering the casket until we all get away, get in our cars, and pull off. And I'm holding Kinley, who at the time is three years of age. And in her innocence, she looks back because I'm standing there. I'm just wanting, you know, you've been there. I'm just standing there, and I'm just one more time. I'm just looking. And I've got Kinley, and I'm holding her right here. And, and uh, we're getting ready. And I said, honey, we've got to go. We've got to get in the car. I'm going to go put her in a car seat. And this is what she said in her innocence. She said, are we going to leave little Mamma here? Is she staying in her box? Now, you didn't have a three, uh, theological conversation with a three-year-old. I mean, you're just like, no, honey, little memo. But I left knowing this reality, that although my mother's body was in a box, my mother at that very moment was in the presence of Jesus. And so as your loved ones who knew Christ, who've gone on ahead of us, they're with, they're with Christ. Do you remember reading that while Jesus was being nailed to the cross? You, you remember this, that one of the two criminals not only refused to mock Jesus or curse Jesus or reject Jesus, but instead he actually calls out to Jesus. And you remember what he said. He calls out and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember, I mean, in his dying moments, Jesus' dying moments, his dying moments, and he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And I love the way that Jesus responds. And Jesus said, uh, you know what? First, you're going to have to go to sleep for a few hundred years. That's not what Jesus said. Well, you're going to have to wait till the rapture, and then the rapture comes, you know, you're just sort of on your own until the rapture comes. No, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said this, I guarantee you this truth today. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. This day, when you take your last breath, no matter how reckless and rebellious and sinful your life has been, you've reached out in his best way that he knew how to receive Jesus and Jesus. He's like, Lord, remember, remember me. Because everybody knew that Jesus was an innocent man. And he said, Lord, would you remember? They knew. Everybody potentially knew. Jesus was Messiah. Jesus, would you remember me when you're coming to your kingdom? And Jesus said, today, today, this very day, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, Paul says it a little bit different way. Look at this verse out of the Corinthian letters. He said, as long as we are in these bodies, like it or not, it's the one you got. As long as we are in these bodies, we are what? Read this with me. Away from the Lord. Now, you see that. Look at it again. As long as we're in these bodies, we are away from the Lord. Uh, what's the implication of that? The implication of that is when we step out of these bodies, we will immediately be with God. Immediately. 
So firstly, what do we need to know about the rapture? What we need to know about the rapture is simply this. The rapture will occur suddenly and without warning. Secondly, when the rapture takes place, deceased believers will rise ahead of those who are alive at that moment. And then thirdly and lastly, the rapture will initiate a reunion that will last forever. Ever. Ever. Going back to Thessalonians, picking up at the very next verse, actually two verses, 17 and 18. After that, Paul said, and again, he's given this great teaching to these believers in Thessalonica about the rapture. He said, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to do what? Read this with me. These three words, meet the Lord in the air. And look at these next ones. Read it with me. So we will be with the Lord. How long? Forever. And then he said, therefore, do what? Encourage each other with these words. This is forever. When Jesus comes back, we will not only begin a reunion with Jesus, but we will begin a reunion with our family members and friends that are going to last how long? Forever. How many of you have lost family members or friends not too long ago? There's going to be a reunion. A reunion. Just about seven weeks ago, I uh, went to the home of the Warren family. Warren family is one of the most incredible families you could ever meet in your life. They just, they're wonderful. Brian and Marcia and, and their three kids. It's an incredible family. And a lot of you heard us talking about it and praying for Marcia because about a year earlier, Marcia in her mid-40s was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer spread to her liver, other parts of her body. And so her family knew that, that she was getting near the end. And they called and said, hey, would you just come out, spend a little time with us? I did that primarily. I wanted to talk to the kids, high school, middle age, uh, middle school age. And so I was having some time with them. But before I left, Brian said, will you come back here and talk with Marcia? And she was getting really, really close to the end. And I pulled up a chair next to her bed, and I, I said, Marcia, I said, let's talk. Let's talk. You know what's happening, right? She says, yes. She was coherent. She was weak, but she was coherent. She said, yes, I know what's happening. As I've often asked people that have been at that place in their life about to depart this world and go into the next one, I ask her, I said, anything you want to talk about? Is there any questions you have? Is there anything you're nervous about? Sometimes, you know, our fear is fear of the unknown. Any? And she says, nope. She said, I'm ready. I'm ready. I said, well, then let me ask you, Marcia. And I got a little bit closer and I said, let me ask you, Marcia. I know you're looking forward to seeing Jesus, but who else? Who else are you looking forward to seeing? And she said, I'm looking forward to seeing. And she began to name off some family members. Sometimes people ask, will we recognize family members in heaven? Absolutely. Don't you believe that? And we're going to have this forever reunion with them in heaven. And Paul is talking about that. And you and I are not going to be rushed, and we're not going to be looking at our watch, and we're not going to be thinking about, okay, I just need to move on because we're going to have all of eternity. You've heard this statement before, all good things. You've heard this, all good things must come to an end. All good things must come to an end. I looked that up one time, and then I jotted down, what is, what, is the, what is the idea of that? And here's what I found. Here's the quote. This is something that is said, when you accept that even enjoyable experiences cannot last forever. How many of you know that vacations do not last forever? How many of you wish they lasted longer than seven days? 
vacation. All good things come to an end. We just recently had uh, Brent and Nicole, the three uh, grandkids down. All good things come to an end. And we had them for three weeks. I felt like I was in heaven right then. Three weeks with Kinley and Landry and Brody. Some of you maybe have heard me tell about on the last day, I was getting ready to take Kinley and, and Landry. They're five and three, getting ready to take them to a park and hang out, Barnett Park, and go around there. And just as we're getting ready to go, it's the last day. It's the final day. They've been three weeks. They're flying out the next morning. And I'm like, all right, girls, we're going to go load up. Papa's going to take you, and we're going to go to the park, and then we're going to hang out. And then when we get through with the park, we're going to go get some ice cream. And you know, how many of you know kids like the park and ice cream? And it's the last day. I, I don't mind telling you. I'm feeling just a little bit emotional, had three weeks, 21 days, 22 days with them, and now they're getting ready to leave. And so just before we leave, Kenley walks through the kitchen, and she's like, just everywhere. And I'm like, okay, you're not going. You're not, you're not going. And I, I got Landry and loaded her up. We went to the park, played, 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 had a great time. I said, well, let's go down to the lake. We'll look. And so we did that, looked at the ducks and the birds, and she'd run up to them, see how close she could get. It's a great time. I'm thinking about, wow, they're going to be, this is my last bit of time with them. And so we're getting ready to leave, and she says, Paul, Paul, carry me. And I'm like, all right. So I reached down, and I picked her up, and we started walking in the direction of the car uphill. And while we're walking, I just, you know, I guess feeling it in the moment, I just said, honey, and I've said this to her so many times, as you've said to your kids and grandkids, I said, honey, I love you so much. I love you so much. Do you have any idea how much your papa loves you? Do you know how much? And she, I love you. I'm going to miss you so bad. Why do you have to go back to Illinois? Stay right here with your papa. I love you. And she, she looked back at me. She just looked me dead in the eye. She just looked, and she said, T.T. is uh, auntie, Audrey, our daughter. She said, T.T. Uh, says that I don't love you, but I love you. In fact, I only love you and nobody else. Anybody here think ice cream had anything to do with that? That's what I thought too, but I still told every single family member, Landry loves me and only me and nobody else. She only loves me. And then I got ready to put her in the car. I never have three car seats in the, in the car. It's just not a customary thing. And there was three car seats, and she was in a, a fine kind of mood. And so she'd get in one, and then she'd jump out of that one and get in the other one, and she'd jump in the other. And so she's back and forth, and I'm, like, waiting, trying to be patient. You know, it's the last day. And, be, and then finally I said, I said, Landry, come on, honey. We've got to go. We've got to go. Get in seat. It doesn't matter what seat, but if you'll get in that seat right now, Papa will give you $1. She didn't bat an eye. She said, $2. $2. All good things come to an end. Vacation, Christmas holidays, events. But what we're talking about tonight is certainly an exception to that rule. This reunion will never end. Never end. Did you know that the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he told his followers that he was coming back again? He said, I'm coming back. Look at what he says. This is John's gospel. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Then I will bring you into my presence so that you'll be where I am. Now, let me talk to you before we're done. Really important. Are you ready? Are you ready? Been in church my whole life, Pastor Jeff. Are you ready? I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than so. I know a lot of people that they're a lot worse off than, no. Are you ready? Are you ready? 
Do you know with absolute certainty that if Jesus, sounds so old school, but it's still true, if Jesus were to come tonight, that you're ready? If you say, absolutely. I know that I'm ready. I applaud that. But then I ask you, are you helping to get your family members and friends ready? I'm not take the time to really get into this, but this morning at Lateside, I had a few moments to just really talk to our church family there about open doors. Paul was writing to a group of believers, and I'll just give you sort of the, the finality of it. Paul was writing to a group of believers, not in Thessalonica at this time, but to a group of believers in Colossae. Very important trade route, you know, between uh, Ephesus and the Euphrates River. And, it's, you know, a lot of people, and I didn't realize this till I started digging into the text, a lot of people think that the church at Colossae, Philemon, who's mentioned in the New Testament, he's got a book, you ought to read it if you've not read his book. And a lot of people say that Philemon was a part of this church in Colossae. And that perhaps the lead pastor of the church was actually Philemon's son. And Paul's writing to this group of believers, and he said, all right, here's what I want you to do. He said, I'm in change, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray that God would give us open doors. Open doors. And then he uses this unique language. He said, pray that God would give us open doors so that I might be able to share with them the mystery of Christ. A lot of times we're reading the Bible and say, all right, the mystery of Christ, don't get it, go keep reading. But when Paul in this setting, in this context, used this expression, the mystery of Christ, you know what he's talking about? He was saying, this is what I'm praying for. I'm praying that God will give me open doors among people that are far from God, among unbelievers, so that I can share with them this reality that God is wanting to reconcile the world to himself, and he's going to do it through Jesus. And Paul said, pray that God will give me open doors. And then he said, hey, by the way, while you're praying that, why don't you start looking for some open doors yourself? Because you've got people in your life. This is what Paul's saying to these believers. You've got people in your life that is far from God. And he says, listen, when you, and he just sort of lays it out. You ought to read it. Colossians 4, it's brilliant text. And he says, listen, as you interact, as you converse with people that are far from God, unbelievers, like people that you have in your life and I have in mind, people you're going to see tomorrow morning at work or people in your own family next time you get together, he said, just come to this realization they're, they're far. And explain to them, help them to understand that they could be reconciled to God. Through Christ. There's another part of it, and maybe we can talk about it later. He said, also, we want to communicate the mystery of Christ that helps us to know that in the, even Gentiles can be welcomed in the family of God. And that's a whole other loaded subject because you had those who said, all right, if Gentiles are to become, become a part of the family of God, then there's all these Judaizers, whole other story. And then, all right, they come to Christ, but then we're going to give them this and this and this and this. And a lot of times, that's what we do. And, and Paul said, all right, time out, time out. Pray that God would give me some open doors so that I share, share with people, Gentiles, it doesn't matter, the mystery of Christ. But then he said, you look for open doors yourself. He said, and make use of every opportunity. And what Paul talks to them, and again, I don't have time to share it tonight because we're about to pray. What Paul says is, I want you to do two things. When you are relating with people that are far from God, I want you to use deliberate wisdom, but I want you to have this urgency about you. Use wisdom. In fact, he told them even how to speak. He said, when you're talking to people that are far from God, he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to use words that are grace-filled. How many of you know that when you're relating with people that are far from God, grace-filled words are always more attractive than judgmental innuendos? 
He said, you have words when you're relating. You use wisdom, you use wisdom, and you use grace-filled words. And then he said, use some salty language. I even said this this morning. I said, some of you, you feel like, hey, preacher, I got the salty language down already, and uh, that's not the kind of language that he's talking about. But you have words that are seasoned. They have an appeal about them. And you live your life, and you use your words. You leverage every opportunity. So when you go back to work this week, or you see your neighbor outside, or maybe you have your next family gathering and you know that there are people within your sphere of influence that are far from God. Say, God, help me to see an open door because I'm ready, but I want them to be ready too. Amen. Stand with me, everybody. Thank you for being so incredibly attentive tonight. Would you just bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? I know it's Sunday night. I know primarily people that are not connected with Jesus come to more of a Sunday morning service, but that would be a faulty assumption in so many regards. Maybe you're here tonight, you're just saying, hey, I, you know, I'm a good person. I look at my life compared to a lot of other people, and I'm better, you know, morally speaking, decently speaking than a lot of people. But, you know, Jeff, I'm not absolutely certain that I'm ready for heaven. I'm not sure that if the rapture of the church were to happen, even this night before I set foot in my house, my condo, my apartment, that I would go. Well, we need to nail that down, even right here, right now. If you're not sure that you're ready for heaven, if you're not confident about your personal relationship with Jesus, that's a huge indicator right there. And if that's you and you just say, hey, I want to nail this down. I don't want to go another day, another night, another moment without making sure I'm right with God. Would you just lift up your hand real high, lift it up real high right where you're standing, right where you're standing. All right, see your hand back there. I'm just going to look around. If it's one or if it's five or if it's two, it doesn't matter. Would you just right there, everybody's head bowed and every eye closed, just pray this prayer. Jesus, come into my heart. I'm so sorry for my sins. I want to be in right standing with you. Thank you for mercy. Just pray it in your mind. God will honor that. God, I'm so thankful for mercy. I'm so thankful for grace. Cleanse and forgive me of all my sins. I want to be in right standing with you. Those of you who are watching online right now and you're just saying, can I pray that? Absolutely. You just pray it. You just say, Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to be right with you. I want to know that I have a secure spot in heaven and I receive you the best I understand into my life. Empower me to live the life that you want me to live in Jesus' name. Now look up here for just a moment. Here's how I want us to end. See, most of you, not all of you, and those that raise their hand, just pray that prayer. But most of you are ready. You're ready. But maybe you're like me. You've got a lot of people on your prayer list. You have a lot of people you're praying for, family members, friends that are far from God, and you're praying for their salvation. What if we took it beyond that? We said, God, I'm not only going to pray for them, but I'm going to be, listen now, the instrument, the vehicle in your hand. I'm going to look for an open door to share my faith with them. I'm not going to be silent. I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. In my own way, I'm going to reveal the mystery of Christ, that God is reconciling sinners unto himself, and he's doing it through Jesus. And Jesus has already paid off our sin debt in full. So maybe you would take it a step beyond that, and you would get really serious, and you would sort of surmise your list, as I've, as I've done this week, and say, all right, I've got all these people that I'm praying for. Who's number one on my list? 
and then you go after them. You go after them in Jesus' name. And be unrelenting till you know that they, just like you, are ready for the rapture. How many of you believe that would please the heart of the Father if we would do that? So you just go after them. You go after them right away. Jesus, use me. Make yourself available. Uh, Help me to see an open door and to be used by you. We're going to open the altars, and we're going to pray. Maybe you just want to come down here. Maybe that person that you're already identified in your mind, you want to get somebody to agree with you. Or maybe tonight you need to be anointed with oil because you're sick. Maybe you've got a dilemma. Maybe you've got some stress in your life. Maybe some problems at work or in your money area, the area of money in your life. Whatever it is. The worship team's going to lead us in a song, and this won't take long. But if you need special prayer, you want to be anointed with oil, you want somebody to agree with you about your lost family member, friend, coworker, you come down and we'll do that. God bless you. There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. Nothing can compare.
You know, it's not too late to come if you want to come and have somebody pray for you or anoint you with all agree with you before you leave here. I'm going to pray a prayer of benediction, but as we leave tonight, I want you to be thinking about this. Be thinking about it and doing something about it. I mentioned these family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors that we have that are far from God. We want them to be ready for heaven as we are. So once you've identified who that like primary person is you're going after first, just remember the words of Paul as he said to those believers. Two words, two words. Wisdom and urgency. So God, step up some urgency that I'm not going to be procrastinating. I'm not going to delay. I'm not going to wait till everything is just right because everything will never be just right. But I'm going to step up some urgency and I'm going to use wisdom. And you do that, friends, and God will use you in ways that you never have dreamed possible before. So God, we go in your name. We go in your power. We go in your authority with this message. It's the message of of yours. It's the mystery of Christ that God is reconciling sinners to himself and he's doing it through Jesus. Let us take your words to people who need to know about you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, I love you. See you. See you Wednesday night. So see you.